right here. Thank you. Uh, John chapter 13, and we left off right around verse 25, 26. This is the Last Supper and uh, the betrayal of Jesus uh, uh, by Judas. Jesus's public ministry is over at this point. In the previous chapter, he's given them one last chance, so to speak, and preached the gospel powerfully. Now we're in the upper room. It's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus will be dead in less than 24 hours, and he knows it. Um, the disciples, prior to Jesus washing their feet at the outset of the Last Supper, the disciples had been arguing, Gospel of Luke tells us, over who is the greatest, not Jesus, God, or the Holy Spirit, but which one of them, Peter, Andrew, John, James, whoever, kind of ridiculous. Jesus shows them true humility by washing their feet. That happened earlier in this chapter. He announces that one of them will betray him, and nobody suspects Judas, because it turns out Judas has the seat of honor at the Last Supper, uh, right next to Jesus to the left. Um, so let's pick it up in uh, John 13, uh, right around verse 21. Let's see. Uh, do we want to go to 20? No, let's go to 21. Those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave your hand or something that I see you guys. Great. Okay. Verse 21 of John 13, after he, that's Jesus, had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And one of you would be one of the 12. This isn't a large group. It's 13 people, Jesus and 12 apostles. His disciples stared at one another, verse 22, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's distinction for himself. He doesn't mean it in a conceited way, like I'm the one he loved. He means it's just in thanksgiving, gratitude for the amazing fact that in grace, God would love him in particular. Uh, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him on the other side, on the right. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So Simon Peter is across the table somewhere. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, verse 25, Lord, who is it? And this is kind of done quietly. You get the feeling. Verse 26, Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this morsel or piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping, it in, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he's designating him for John, and Peter would also know. The other disciples might not get it. The weird thing is that in that culture, this is the, the host, which Jesus is acting as the host. He's the one that breaks the bread, talks about the wine, and hands all that out later. Um, as the host, he has the right to offer the first piece of bread dipped in the Paschal stew to an honored guest. He's offering it to Judas of all people um, as one last, you know, sort of appeal to him, knowing though that he's not going to uh, repent. He's going to betray him. So he offers that to Judas. The others see that and think, wow, honored guest, very special person. At this point, John and Peter at least know it's Judas um, that's going to betray him. 
I want you to notice what a good, we said it last week, what a good counterfeit Judas was, a good faker. Nobody suspected him. He's the one that had the money box or money bag we learned a week or two ago, and he used to steal from it. Judas never was saved. He never believed. In chapter six, Jesus says, did I not choose the 12 of you? And one of you is a devil. Do you remember that? Judas was never uh, a believer. So uh, he dips the piece of bread in verse 26 and hands it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon, verse 27, as, as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. We don't know positively whether this is satanic influence in a great scale, or is it an actual like demon possession kind of thing? It does say he entered into him. It doesn't say a demon entered into him. It's Satan himself, which rarely occurs. Let's face it. Satan is not omnipresent. Can't be everywhere at the same time. So he doesn't go around possessing that many people in a planet of 7 billion. But in this case, as important as Jesus is, he goes into Judas. So um, at least strong influence, if not actual possessing Judas. Um, the opportunity for him to repent has passed. Judas is all in on the betrayal. Prior to this, he has talked to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, and made a deal for 30 pieces of silver to betray his close friend, Jesus. That number, 30 pieces of silver, is in the book of Zechariah, predicted that he'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which will be thrown in the temple and used to buy a potter's field. Is that what happened? It's exactly what happened. Pretty amazing. Lucky guess. No, God knows ahead of time. It's ironic that Jesus's final act of friendship to Judas here, you take the first morsel of bread, is what triggers his betrayal and, the, and Satan coming into him. It's pretty, a pretty amazing scene. Matthew tells us that there's a conversation here where he says, one of you is going to betray me. Matthew says that they go around the table, Peter, Andrew, Philip, surely not I, Lord. Next guy, Thomas, surely not I, Lord. Is it me, Lord? In Matthew's gospel, it comes all the way around to Judas, who says, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Is the only one that doesn't call him Lord. Rabbi means teacher. Jesus is a great teacher. Yes, but if he's not your Lord, it's, it's not anywhere near the same thing. Um, so when Jesus is asked that by Judas in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus responds, you've said it yourself, meaning yes, kind of thing. So Jesus uh, offers him the food. He accepts his food, but not his love. Judas is not going to repent. He's going to regret. We'll talk about that uh, later on. And there's a big difference. Um, let's see. Let's talk about demon possession just for a second. Okay. I've talked to Christians. We used to do question and answer seminars at my old church and at this church, we've done six or seven. A lot of Christians have worries about demon possession. 
listen, if you're a Christian, by definition, Romans says the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So although the devil hates you and demons will try to um, oppress you or tempt you, they cannot enter you because the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And as Walter Martin used to say, when the devil comes knocking, the Holy Spirit opens the door of your soul and says, I live here, get lost. It has been said that demons cannot possess Christians. That's number one. Well, but can demons just go around the rest of society that aren't saved and just pick somebody and possess them? And the answer is no, because you learn from the Bible that uh, Deuteronomy 18 and elsewhere, the door, if you will, to your soul has the doorknob on the inside. What do you mean? I mean, if someone gets possessed, they engaged in dangerous, occultic, satanic behavior, past life regression, seances, um, all that kind of stuff, fortune tellers, uh, witchcraft, the, all of the occult, deep new age meditation. Now, if you've done those things, does that mean you're demon possessed? No, of course not. But those are gateways where you're maybe... Uh, without knowing you're opening the door to demonic influence, if not demonic possession. Satan, for him to enter Judas, Judas had already opened the door through his rebellion and what have you. Um, so but what's interesting is the second half of this verse, Satan enters into him. Um, but the second half of the verse is even more interesting. It's Jesus says to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. I want you to see that not only does Jesus know that Satan's going to betray him, but he is totally in control. He's told them before so that when it happens, they'll believe. He's telling Judas, you're dismissed. Bye-bye. Okay, you're the weakest link. You ever watched that TV show years ago? Get lost. Go do what you're going to do quickly. Does that matter? Yes, it's Thursday night. Jesus has to die Friday, Passover, while they're sacrificing the lambs. Don't dilly-dally, Judas. Don't stop at 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. Go do your business. It's interesting, when Judas comes back with the army, basically, of Jewish religious leaders, temple police, and uh, others, with torches and swords, remember that, the arrest, we'll see that about five chapters from now. When he comes back, it is thought that he takes them first to the upper room. That's where he left Jesus, but he's not there. And then Judas remembers, he hangs out at Gethsemane. Let's go there. And that's where he's arrested. It, the timing is so precise, and it, none of it's left to chance. That's why he says, what you're going to do do it quickly. Verse 28, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. You say, wait a minute. He just said, one of you is going to betray me. And he had it in the bread. And at least Peter and John heard that. Yes. But Judas was so trusted. Judas was sitting in the seat of honor. Judas got the bread, which was a, like a, a toast to an honored guest. Judas was so trusted. He had the money bag. They don't know that he's stealing. They well, we'll read the rest and you'll understand why. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Verse 29, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. Now, that is not the festival of Passover. You say, why not? 
because they're eating the Passover meal. Judas misses just about all of it, eats the bread, Satan enters him, and he splits. The feast that immediately follows Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he would regularly send Judas out with the money bag, go buy what we need for that feast, the meal. So that's what the disciples think. Oh, that's why he's dismissing Judas. They still don't get it. Uh, kind of surprising. Um, and then this verse, verse 30. Uh, John never uses a word accidentally. Verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Why is that detail in there? Because if you read the gospel of John, there's a, a, a thing that keeps returning, which is that motif of darkness and light, meaning not dark and light, like nighttime and daytime, but spiritually sin is darkness. Um, and God, he's the light of the world. So he wants you to know that the son of God is about to be betrayed and it's night in more ways than one spiritually, a very dark time is about to happen. Um, so he goes out and it's night. Verse 31. Now the whole tone of this gospel for five chapters is going to change radically because the enemy is gone. Now he can talk to the 11 disciples. And this is what's called the upper room discourse. It's a long time where we get to eavesdrop on pretty much, if you have a red letter Bible, it's all Jesus talking just about all of it. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man, that's his favorite title for himself, is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in him and will glorify him at once. What word appears five times there, class? Kind of over the top, right? It's every other word is glorified almost. When he was gone, now he can talk. He says, now I, the son of man, Jesus says, that now the son of man is glorified. This is where it all starts. He's saying the wheels, the engine's been fired up and the wheels are turning. He's going to go find the Jewish leaders. They're going to get weapons together and torches. They're going to come find us. He's going to get arrested and beaten and have seven trials and be whipped and be crucified and die and rise from the dead and appear to the disciples and ascend to heaven. All of that is necessary. All of it is horrible if you're a human being getting whipped and beaten and dying, right? <clears throat> Jesus sees it as the crowning achievement, the reason he came to earth, his glorification. Look at those verses again, and I'll accent that word. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. There's no separation between God, the father and God, the son. When God, the son is glorified, God the Father is glorified, and vice versa. What does it mean? What does the word glory mean? It has to do with seeing someone's um, great majesty, great splendor, the, the brightness of their presence. He's saying, this is my glory, what's about to happen, even though they're going to think it's horrendous. And, this, and the God is glorified in him. That means God the Father. Verse 32, if God is glorified in Jesus, in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him that he wants them to know at once. It's all coming down, boys. And within hours, it's all going to happen. So he starts off with his own glory. He wants them to know it's going to look bad. This is all for my 
glory and the glory of God the Father. Um, notice, by the way, when he dismisses Judas, he keeps the words, Jesus does, vague enough for the apostles to not fully get it and specific enough for Judas to understand you're dismissed, go do what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do, go do it. It's thought that some of the commentaries mentioned that if had he said exactly what was going to happen, now you're going to go get me crucified and get me killed and betray me. Peter, knowing Peter, right, might have tried to stop him, right? Some of the others too. He keeps it vague. They're kind of kept in the dark so they don't fully understand. So there's that glory, those two verses, five times the word glory or glorified appears. Verse 33. He drops bombshell number two. What was number one? One of you is going to betray me. Bombshell number two. My little children, verse 33. I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. Okay? I want you to understand, put yourself in the shoes, sandals of the 11 disciples. They have dropped everything in their lives. They have stopped their fishing business or the other businesses. Matthew was a very wealthy tax collector. He stopped doing that. They've invested three years of their lives, gave up everything. And now he's saying, bye-bye, I'll see you later. I, where I'm going, you can't come. You're going to see in the text that they think he means I'm going on a long journey. I'm going to travel somewhere. Okay, we'll get there. Uh, my little children, he doesn't mean that as a, as a cut to them uh, in a derogatory way. He means it in a tender way. What is the characteristic of what are the characteristics of children? They're dependent, aren't they? Right? They're also innocent. They don't understand some things. He's treating them like the children they are but it's a tender term. My little, my children, I will be with you. It's the Greek word technia. I will be with you only a little while longer. If you want to get technical, he's going to be with them a few hours. That's it. And he'll get arrested after Gethsemane happens. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you can't come. Now, the difference with the Jews, he told them that. He told the religious leaders a couple chapters ago that where I'm going, you can't come. And they asked, hypothetically, is he going away to, a, to the dispersion to some other country or whatever? What he means is I'm going to the Father in heaven. You can't come there. He means that for the Jews, the religious leaders that are hypocrites, he means that you can't come ever. He doesn't mean that with these guys. They will follow later. But right now, there's going to be a sudden separation. Um, he wants them to know that. You'll look for me. And as I told the Jews, I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. Okay. That's another bombshell. We're going to about to be separated. Um, they are, they've already had another bombshell earlier, which is, uh, I'm sorry, not earlier, but they're about to hear that Peter's going to deny him who, and he's the leader. So at this tough time, he wants them, he wants to prepare them. Um, so he says, where I'm going, you can't come. Now, this is kind of humorous because the response is nothing, if you notice, until you get to 36. Because Simon Peter, 
is still hung on those words. Where I'm going, you can't come. But very rapidly, he says, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that there were two basic commandments. One was love God, and the other was love your neighbor, okay? So is this a new command? Yes. You say, well, it sounds the same to me. Love, love one another, okay? This is not negating the fact that they're supposed to love everybody, but he's saying in a special way, I want you disciples, you 11, and everybody in this room and on Zoom and every Christian in the universe, I want you Christians to love each other in such a way that it is so evident to the world, boy, that's unusual. Look how they care for one another. Tertullian was a, a church father writing at the end of the second century. Um, 170 years from when this is happening, 160, something like that. And he quotes um, uh, how unbelievers talk about Christians, and they always said, see how these Christians love one another. Then there was another unbeliever, Cecilius, uh, we'll start with a C. And he, and he said about Christians, he wrote, they love one another almost before they even know one another. Christians are supposed to have that kind of a bond. We can disagree on minor issues. We can nece not necessarily like everything about someone, but as believers, we are, listen, family members. As a parent, one of the hardest things as a parent is when your kids fight with each other. It used to hurt me and my wife. They didn't do it a lot, but they did it sometimes. It's so important that we Christians show so much love and care for one another that the world, it's supposed to be one of the distinguishing factors. Look at that verse again. Um, by this, 35 says, you will know, everyone will know, sorry, that you are my disciples if you love one another. In, when I was a Catholic, we used to sing a, a hymn that the, uh, the was called, They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Do you remember that song? Anybody? Let's sing one stanza, shall we? No, never mind. I'm just kidding. Just want to see if you're awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. Well, that was getting pretty weak. Okay. Christians are supposed to love one another. So what, what does that mean exactly? Because love is an emotion. It's something you have to feel wrong. Or as my grandkids like to say, eh wrong. They love when I do that. Listen, if love was an emotion that you have to feel, would Jesus command it? Would God in the Old Testament command love? No, love is not an emotion that you feel. Love is a verb. It's something you just do. I can dislike her or him and still act loving toward him or her, do kind things for them. What's weird is if you do that, you'll find the emotion follows like the caboose on a train and you start to have affection for the person that you're being kind to. So it's a command, but notice how high Jesus sets the bar. He doesn't leave it as just a vague love, you know, love like 60s love, everybody, peace and love. How are we supposed to love? Love one another as I, Jesus, have loved you. That's, that's your goal. 
Okay, so you say, well, how did Jesus love them? Well, he cared for them. He taught them. He protected them, fed them, right, sometimes. However, what did he just do? Just wash their feet. Total humility. You guys need to love one another. Were they? No, they were arguing right before the foot washing. Same night, who's the greatest? I think I am. No, I think he is. I am arguing back and forth. Kind of ridiculous. Love the way I loved you. You say, well, that's a pretty high, tall order. It gets worse. Because before the day, before 24 hours is up, he's going to die in their place. He's going to die for them. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, one of the epistles of Paul says. God wants us as Christians to love one another. It doesn't mean that we don't love the world, but in a special way, we love fellow Christians. Even if we don't agree with everything they say or do, we are, that's going to be the characteristic that people recognize. Um, so we have to love one another. And everyone will know we're his disciples if we do that properly so you say yeah but you know this is really hard for me because some people are just so annoying and they are i might be one of them in your life but the thing is the love of god god's own love which is you have to admit way more powerful than your love or my love the love of broad god is shed abroad in our hearts what do you mean i mean that when you become a christian and you receive the holy spirit he gives you that love that you think i couldn't possibly love that person he makes you able to do good to that person, to love them, to care about them, and put others before yourself. So that's a huge command that we love the way he loved. He gave his love up, gave his life up for them in love. He's about to say, greater love has no man that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what he wants them to be willing to do, put others first. Verse 36, Simon Peter says, Look, where are you going? What is that from? He just talked about love. Peter can't get past verse 30, whatever that was, 33, right? Where I'm going, you can't come. I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. Then he went on to the whole love thing. Peter was like, no, 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 back up. Where are you going? Lord, Jesus replied, where I'm going, verse 36, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later because you're going to die eventually, right? And you'll go to heaven where I'm going. There's a sense in which it's not just heaven, the afterlife, eternity. There's a sense in which where's Jesus going? To the cross. They can't come there, right? The plan of God is that only he gets crucified. You would think they would have arrested all 11 disciples and let's crucify them too to teach them a lesson. It doesn't happen that way. Only Jesus gets crucified. But later, Peter gets crucified, remember, upside down. And each of them, except John, dies the, the death of a martyr. So they do follow even to the death thing, but eventually he means heaven by this, really. Where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Translation, temporary separation. Have you had a believer friend, I have, or relative that has passed on? It's, it's hard, isn't it? but it's a temporary separation. We will see them again. We'll follow and go where they're going and there'll be an unbelievable reunion in heaven. So he wants them to know you can't come now, but you will come later. You'll follow me later. Here comes Peter. 
foot in mouth Peter. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Ironic, isn't it? Because Jesus is about to lay down his life for him. Peter is speaking in the flesh. Peter is way too overconfident in his own strength and ability. It's been said that when you and I fail, we fail at what we think was our strong suit. Well, that's tempting to me, but I would, I would never do that. And Satan tempts you with that, and you're caught off guard. Peter thinks he's the strongest one. It may be because of what Jesus is about to say, you're going to deny me, right? That's coming in the text. It may be because of that, that when he gets arrested, Jesus does, what does Peter do? Pulls out a sword, remember? I'll protect you, Jesus. It's kind of ridiculous, right? And he takes a wild swipe at Malchus, the high priest's servant, and cuts off his ear. Jesus does his final healing miracle and heals the dude's ear. Pretty amazing thing. But back to the text. Um, Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This is the same guy that's going to say three times at a fire, outside the home of the high priest, I don't even know Jesus, right? He's going to just deny that he even knows him. He's going to, in a sense, betray him. Not as bad as Judas, but it's a betrayal. We're going to look at, before this chapter is over, comparing Peter, who fell, and Judas, who fell, and why they're so different. But let's keep rolling. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. I'll die for you, Jesus. Verse 38, then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I wonder if he said it with a little chuckle. Very truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I tell you, whenever Jesus says that, it means, listen up, this is really important. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me, deny me three times. Strangely. And just at a pregnant pause, the whole chapter ends right there. No response from Peter. I think he's, what did you say? Going to deny him three times. And it's not vague. It's not in the next 20 years before the rooster crows. It's already nighttime. We know that because that's when Judas left. The rooster's going to crow in four or five hours, six hours. You know, if it's 11 at night, seven hours, 6 a.m., somewhere around there. The rooster's going to crow. And if you remember the story, Peter does deny Jesus. And right as soon as he does, what happens? Right? Not a very good rooster. But let's talk about Peter and Judas, because they both made a big mistake, didn't they? Judas denied Christ and betrayed him. This was, for Judas, a deliberate betrayal. It was planned. He got paid for it. G Peter denies Christ. It is not deliberate. It's not planned. It's very spontaneous. It's a peer pressure thing. Hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Uh, me? No, I don't know. Right? Three times. What else is different? Peter repents. Okay? What is repentance? It's when you turn from your sin and go back to your Lord. That's what he does. Remember, he swims to Jesus on the shore, and is reinstated. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus says three times to him, 
Simon Peter, do you love me? Three times, because he denied him three times. He reinstates him. Judas regrets what he did. Does he go back to Jesus and ask for forgiveness? No. Hangs himself and dies. One ends up in hell. One you're going to meet in heaven, Peter. Uh, pretty amazing. Jesus prays for Peter. Do you remember that? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you recover, strengthen your brethren, your brothers. He's the leader. He didn't pray for Judas because he knows Judas was never saved. Judas is going to do this evil deed. Here's something about Judas. I hear people that have a little sympathy for poor Judas. Listen, on the one hand, was it decreed by God that Judas would betray Jesus? Yes. Was it predicted? Yes. Could it have gone any other way? No. If God predicts it, it's true. Oh, well, then poor Judas is just a hapless victim who's being controlled like a piece of chess, a chess piece on a board. Wrong. Because Jesus says in another gospel, um, it's been decreed. This is the way it's going to go. But woe to that man who does the betraying. It would be better for him if he was never born. Judas acts of his own free will, and yet it's in the plan of God. Well, which is it? Divine sovereignty, God's the king and in control, or is it human responsibility, Judas? Yes, both. Do I fully understand how this can be? No. But that's how the Bible presents it. Judas is totally blamable, culpable for what he did. It's a deliberate uh, betrayal. Okay, so there's no, the chapter breaks, remember, are and the verse numbers occur centuries after the Bible is written. Why, why are you saying that, Joe? Because you, you wouldn't stop and read 14, the number 14, you'd just keep going. Jesus, let me reiterate, is about to suffer a horrible, torturous death. Okay, and he's going to be um, abandoned by all 11 of the people around the table, already been abandoned by Judas. He, he will be abandoned by his own people, the Jews who will yell, crucify him. He'll be beaten. He'll be whipped. He'll be spit upon. He'll be mocked. Seven trials. We mentioned that. And eventually nailed to a cross and die a horrible death where he's actually abandoned by the worst a person you could be abandoned by, and that's his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turns his back on Jesus because he's bearing your sin and mine and the sin of the whole world. What's your point? If I knew that was coming for me in eight or 10 hours, you would see me freaking out. What's he going to do for the next several chapters? Comfort the boys, the 11. And in so doing, I think, He's going to comfort you and me as well. Chapter 14 of John is called the comfort chapter. It's one of the most comforting quoted scriptures. It's quoted at funerals. Um, it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. I can't wait to teach it, but I have to introduce it first. Um, why do they need encouragement and comfort? Jesus is leaving. He told them, and they can't go. Peter's going to betray him. The rock the leader. Judas, one of the 12, is gone, and there's some suspicion that, like, what? Why, why did he leave? Um, 
he, they're going to watch as Jesus dies on that cross. At least John, we don't know how many others were there. This is going to be a weird time for them. Their whole world is exploding. Okay. They gave everything to him and it's going to look like this was all a waste of time. So to encourage them, he's going to tell them about his father's house, about his return, his second coming, about the fact that they'll see him again. They'll do, listen to this, greater works than he has done. All this to encourage him. He's going to tell them about the power of prayer they never imagined. He's going to tell them about the gift he's going to give them called the Holy Spirit. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. Let's dive in, shall we? Verse 1, chapter 14. Uh, NIV has, do not let your hearts be troubled. I can't resist. The, I like King James better. Let not, you know, your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, two things. That first phrase, do not let your hearts be troubled. Did you catch that? It has the sense in Greek of stop letting your hearts freak out, worry, be anxious, be troubled. He's saying, listen to this, it's a command, don't let that happen, which implies what? What it implies is this, that you and I control, we steer the car that is our thoughts. He's saying, you keep steering toward all the bummers you're hearing about, and you're starting to worry, steer the car away from that to what I'm saying, and to me and to my father. That's what he's going to say. He's trying to comfort them, to tell them, you control what you think. Watch. Everybody listening on Zoom and here in person, I want you right now, everyone, I want you to think about a, an elephant painted red. Did you do it? You kind of had to, like, it's this weird thing, elephant painted red. Okay, now watch this. Don't think about green apples. Don't think about it. You did, right? But you can train your mind when your mind is going, uh-oh, what if this happens, Joe? Ken, what about this? What about that? And you start worrying. For me, Satan gets me in the middle of the night. If I wake up, I get the, what about this? You get better worry about that. How do you counteract that? Quote scripture to yourself. Pray to God. Focus on God. Steer your thoughts away from that stuff to something else. From red elephants, steer your mind to green apples. You say, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. From worry and anxiety, steer your mind to all the things you can be thankful for, to the God of the universe who loves you and that the fact your, your future is totally glorious. Don't let, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now that phrase in Greek has caused all kinds of debate. It's not serious debate, but it's debate nonetheless. The way it's worded, uh, in Greek, it can be either an indicative or an imperative. You say, I don't know what that is. Me either, but I learned it this week. An indicative is a statement. So it would read this way. You believe in God, believe in me also. Or it could be a command. Believe in God, believe in me also. Which is it? Scholars disagree. Um, I believe it's a uh, 
that a statement makes more sense. You believe in God. These are Orthodox Jews. You believe in God, don't you? Believe also in me. Listen, this is an arrogant term if he's not God. He's saying the same way that you believe there's a God in heaven, God the Father, believe in me just that way because that's who I am. But there's more. And this is what it is. None of them have ever, and neither of you, none of them have ever seen God. He's their unseen Lord, right? In the same way, he's saying, you see me, you can shake my hand, you can pat me on the head right now. I'm about to go away and I'm going to become an unseen Lord, just like God, the father, you need to believe in me the same way you believe in him. You've never seen him. Have you? No. Even when you don't see me and it's going to be harder to believe in me, that's when you need to believe in me even more. If you don't want your hearts to be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. The antidote to worry, listen, is faith. The medicine for worry is faith. I will even go so far as to say the opposite of faith is worry. Okay. Now, um, I know Ken pretty well right there, known him for years, and he's a pretty dependable guy. And if I called him at midnight and said, I'm stuck on Highway 41 in Madeira with a flat tire, can you come and help me? And he said, yes, I'll be right there. Uh, I'm, I'm about 40 minutes away. I'll see you soon. Don't worry. And he hangs up and I hang up the phone. Okay. Now faith comes into play. Now I'm starting to think about Ken's character. Is he kind of a flake where he often doesn't show up? No, no. He's, is he late usually like three hours? He said he'd be there at noon and he's there at three. No, he's pretty on time. I'm just going to sit there and not worry. But imagine if I call Ken 10 minutes later and I say, are you coming? What is that? It's a lack of faith. It's kind of an insult. Ken says, Joe, I told you I'd be there. Yeah, I'm just getting my shoes on, starting the car in a minute. I'll be there. And then I call him five minutes later and I say, are you in the car? Did you start driving? Do you see what I mean? Don't we do that with God when we worry? Are you really there? Are you really going to come through? I'm praying. Are you hearing me really? It's an insult to God. The opposite of worry is faith. Just letting go and going, I believe you, God. I know you've got this. It involves, though, giving God the latitude to answer your prayer, sometimes in a way you didn't expect. But he always comes through. Uh, almost time to take our two-minute break. Let's keep rolling here. Um, we're going to come to a controversial verse that's a little more controversial. Um, but let's stay in verse one for a second longer. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Does he mean this for the 11 guys? Yes. Does he mean it from you for you 2,000 years later? Absolutely. So when you're troubled, when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you're freaking out, you need to quote this verse to yourself. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God who you can't see. You've never touched Believe also in me in the same way, because I have, he's saying, the same power, the same uh, goodness, the same truth. We are the same. That's what he's been saying over and over. Okay, I'm going to introduce the controversial verse, and then we're going to take our two-minute break so you can chew on it. Verse two, my father's house has many rooms. Some translations have mansions. We're going to talk about that. In my father's house is many 
rooms or mansions. If that were not so, would I have told you, uh, I, I would have told you, sorry, uh, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Okay. Why is this controversial? Because there's two schools of thought, two theories about this. The predominantly held view is that he means his father's house, which is, somebody say it, heaven, right? Oh, he's talking about the rapture. In my father's house, there's many rooms. By the way, the word is mone, M-O-N-E, and it really means individual rooms. Think of it as apartments. It's really not mansions, which would be separate dwellings. The idea is not a neighborhood. Then the idea is a gigantic house, okay, where it's the father's house and he's got room for you. No matter how many people show up, he's got room. Not like Bethlehem, no room in the inn kind of thing. The question is, is this heaven? Because he's going there, I want you to notice, to prepare a place for you. I'm just going to plant this question, and then we're going to take our two-minute break. Here's the question. How long did it take? John 1 says that Jesus created everything that was, okay? Genesis chapter 1, you know the creation. How long did it take God, Christ, to create the entire planet Earth, the whole universe, the stars, the moon, the sun, all the planets, all the galaxies? How long did it take God to create the whole universe class? Six days. He rested on the seventh, right? If it took him six days to create the whole universe, how big is this house that he's going to prepare a place and he's still preparing it 2,000 years later? Uh-oh. Um, my battery's running low on my PC for some reason, and it is plugged in. I'm going to check that on the break. Anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about. Let's take our two-minute break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Mm, I got to do that first. We're back, and um, um, let's see. Where's Joyce? Let your faith be bigger than your fear. I like that, she just said. Somebody else asked me, isn't there a verse in the Bible that tells you how big heaven is? Well, not heaven technically, like where a believer goes right now. If I was to die, I would go to heaven. I don't think there's any limit to it. I think it's like another dimension of the spiritual dimension where God lives, where the angels are. But the new Jerusalem in Revelation 20, 21, 22, right in there, I want to say, I don't think it's 20, 21 or 22, comes down out of heaven as a bride beautifully adorned uh, for her husband. It is, um, they give measurements there. And in today's terms, we talk in terms of miles, the new Jerusalem, the city, which is the eternal state, which where we will live forever with God and Christ is on the earth. Uh, a new earth, new heavens, that city comes down. It is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles up vertically. You say, give me an idea how big that is. Okay. Corner number one, San Diego. Corner number two, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
Corner number three, Detroit, Michigan. Corner number four, Seattle. That's how big 1,500 miles, roughly by 1,500 miles is, but then it's cubed. It's that high into space as well. Okay. Okay, so back to this. Here's the two theories. Theory number one, this is heaven. In the Bible, heaven is called, listen, a country, a city, a kingdom, a paradise, and maybe here, the Father's house. This is the pre-tribulation rapture when Christ returns for the church. The theory of the pre-tribulation rapture is that Christ returns for the church, takes us out instantly in the twinkling of an eye, and takes us to heaven for seven years when the tribulation is occurring on planet earth. Antichrist is here. All hell is breaking loose on earth. We won't see any of that in the pre-tribulation view. We'll be in heaven with him at the father's house. Um, if that's right, we're going to live in the father's house for seven years. That's it. Because then we come back down with Jesus' second coming. There's a thousand year millennium most scholars believe, not all, and then the eternal state, that city I mentioned coming down 1,500 miles cubed or square. Um, okay, the word Monet is definitely dwelling place or room, not a mansion, but a mansion implies two things, a separate house. There's his mansion down the street. It's not going to be that. We're going to be in one house, but mansion also, the word implies what? a really, really nice place, right? A mansion. There's no mansions in the ghetto, right? In a poor country. It's a opulent, very fancy place. That part I think is true. I don't think you're going to get to heaven and go, oh, this is it. <laughs> Gee, I, didn't you think it would be better? I think it'll be so much better than you imagined. You're going to, you're, head's going to explode in a good way. Um, whatever that means. Okay. So theory number one is uh, oh, by the way, notice that it's the father's house, not his hotel, where you check in, but you might get kicked out. Father's house implies family. You're his daughter. You're his son. You're going to live with him forever. Pretty cool. Um, okay, so we need to do a little digging on this word father's house. First place we go is the Old Testament. These are Jewish men, 11 of them listening to him as they heard this or read this in the centuries after that. Father's house meant the temple. What does Jesus say when he's clearing out the temple? You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. So, okay, wait, the temple. Well, what's the temple? A place where people come to meet God, to pray. They come for sacrifice. They come to be edified and taught spiritually. Stay with me on this. Okay. Um, we already talked about that. In that era, when a, a parent, uh, when parents had children who grew up when they got married and your son Harry comes home with Louise and he says, this is my new wife. The father would immediately build on to the house, a room or rooms for Harry, his son and the new wife, Louise, or whatever I said, her name was, I can't even remember now. Um, so that's the picture here. We are, um, you don't prepare a place unless you're confident people are coming. It's done with love. Just like if you had a baby, um, you would prepare the baby's room. You wouldn't throw it together. You'd carefully prepare it, right? Um, that's what's going on here. Okay, but there's more. 
um, did it, is it taking Jesus 2000 years to prepare this house? If it's a father's house, keep in mind six days to make the whole universe doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Here's the second theory. Not every scholar holds this, but some do. The second theory is that the house is a spiritual building. It's a spiritual house. You say, okay, where do you get that? And what does that mean? Watch. Um, to do this, um, let's see. We, we're going to look at some clues. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So from there, go to the right. From John, go to the right past Acts, Romans, and five or six books. And you'll come to, after Galatians, after the two Corinthian books, Ephesians. And we want chapter 2. I want you to notice the wording of the scriptures I'm going to talk about uh, in this section. If Ephesians 2, if you can't find it, that's okay. Just listen. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of what? God's household. Built, oh, there's the building word, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Oh, a cornerstone is the main stone in a building. He's saying Jesus is one of the parts of the building. Stay with me on this. In him, Jesus, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to come a, become a what? Holy temple in the Lord. Here it comes, verse 22. And in him, you too, believers, are being built together to become a mone, same Greek word, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, I haven't explained it yet. We got to look at one more verse. Go to 1 Peter. So from Ephesians, take a right again and go about another 10 books to the right. One of the last books before you get to 1 John and all that. It's after Hebrews and James. 1 Peter, what do we want? Chapter 2. 1 Peter, there's 2 Peter and 1 Peter. We want 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, if you can't find it, that's fine. Another clue about buildings, houses, and all that. First Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, precious cornerstone. You also, verse 5, like living stones, listen to this, are being built into a spiritual house. You mean a house built, made up of people? That's what I mean. That's what Peter means. You also, Christians, are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so what's your point in all this, Joe? My point is some of you know that I believe that the rapture when Christ takes believers out of the world is the same event as the second coming. Meaning what? We have to go through the tribulation? Yes. Why warn believers in the Bible about a tribulation and an antichrist we're never going to see? I believe the church goes through the tribulation. Uh, it's the view, by the way, that was held unanimously until 1830 by the Christian church. The church fathers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, you can go all the way through history. This is the view that was unanimously held. 1830, everything changed. 
uh, for a lot of people. Okay, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that before? It comes from one of the Corinthian books. Um, we are being built into this house, all of us as believers. That's why it's taken 2,000 years. Because if he just had to build a house, Jesus could build a huge house in a, less than a week, right? He built the universe in less than a week. He could build it in a couple of hours, if not 10 minutes. What's taking so long? God is waiting for the last human being that will receive Christ, one of his elect chosen, to come to Christ. Then the building will be prepared. Before that, Jesus has to do some other things to prepare the house. What's that? Suffer, die, rise from the dead, appear to the apostles, ascend to heaven. That's got to happen first. But meanwhile, each of us, he's preparing a house for us. And in a sense, he's preparing us for that house, right? We're growing. More people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, okay, let's look at some other um, clues in terms of the what's going on here. Go back to chapter 14 of John with me. Now let's read it again, and I'm going to skip ahead to a few verses. My father In my father's house is many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, notice the language, if I go and prepare a place for you by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, and then I'm preparing each one of you, which are bricks, living stones in that building, I will come back and take you to heaven. Is that what it says? No. Take you to be with what? Me. Meaning what? So that where I am, you may be also. What are you saying, Joe? Listen, we tend to think in terms of places. I'm going to go from California to Florida or to Texas or to Italy, different place. I'm going to leave the earth and I'm going to go to heaven. Listen, heaven is another dimension, but we live most of the, our eternity on this planet again in that eternal city that Nancy asked me about, or in the millennium, which takes place, wait for it, on earth. Well, then what are you saying, Joe? I'm saying that if a believer dies now, they do go to heaven. It's true. Okay. But he's still building the house. Heaven is not a place as much as it is a person. If you're near Jesus, that's heaven. If you're with God, that's heaven. Look again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, Jesus, so that you may be where I am. Um, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, wait a minute. Verse 4 says it sounds like it's a place, Joe. Okay. Jesus, I'm going to skip down to verse 6. Jesus answers because Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to what? Heaven? No. No man comes to the Father. Again, it's a person, not a place. I believe the house he's building right now is as your sister, your neighbor, people in Biafra and China are coming to Christ or Venezuela or wherever, Detroit, even Coarse Gold, when they're coming to Christ. 
The house is being built by him. It's all his work. Okay, controversial a little, not that bad though. Uh, I didn't make any enemies yet. Um, so he's going to prepare a place. He's going to prepare us. I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be, verse 3, where I am. In the parallel passage, uh, rapture-wise, is in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, and thus we will be with the Lord, listen, forever. Again, it doesn't say heaven. It says, be with the Lord, which is heaven, wherever he is. If you're with him, it's heaven. Verse 4 is interesting. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Okay, how many of you use GPS here? You ever use GPS? If I say, uh, come to my house, use GPS. What are you waiting for? What's the address? Where is it? Right? Then I can punch it in. You can't say Joe's house to the GPS. It's going to go, what? Doesn't make any sense. And your Google Maps on your phone, right? It's what everybody uses now. You have to know the location. So he says, you know the way the roads, if you will, the path to take, the doorway to where I'm going, okay? Now, you got to love Thomas, verse 5. He gets a bad rap. They call him Doubting Thomas. Do you remember that? Because of when Jesus rises from the dead and appears in the upper room, there's only 10 of them. He's not there, remember? And then he comes back later, and they go, we saw him. Saw who? Jesus. He appeared. What does Thomas say? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and in his feet and put my hand in his side, I'm not believing. I think he gets a bad rap. You know what I like to call him? Honest Thomas. I think Jesus says, you know the way to the place I'm going. You ever been in a class where the teacher says something and the whole, you know, no one knows what he's talking about. You know who the honest one is? The one that raises his hand and goes, wait, what? We have no idea what you're talking about. Thomas is that guy. Very practical. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You haven't given us the address where you live, Joe. How can we know which roads to take? You understand what he's asking? It's a great question. But Jesus says it this way so that he'll say that. Because he wants them to know verse 6. Where are you going? And how do we know the way? Verse six, Jesus answered, I am, this is the sixth of seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the way. Notice the way is a person. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to, here comes the address. You ready? Doesn't say heaven. It says the father. The destination is the Father, God the Father. No man comes to God the Father except through me. Now, we won't do this, but honestly, we could spend an hour and a half on this verse. We could spend three hours and a half, four and a half hours, three weeks in a row, just on verse six. There's so much here. Remember the question. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You know both. If Jesus is the way, what he's saying is, you know me, don't you? Well, yeah, we know you, Jesus. Then you already know the way. Got that so far? And where's the place? 
the father. That's the destination. And by the way, you guys, you 11, you know the father too, because you've seen me. That's what he's going to say later in this chapter. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. We're one. He's saying you already know the way and the destination, me. Christianity, although it's doctrines, it's scripture, it's faith, it comes down to one thing, a person named Jesus Christ. You take Jesus out of Christianity and just leave the, the ethics and the kindness and the love, and you've really got nothing without God, Christ, Holy Spirit. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. How can we know the way? I am the way, okay, and the truth. We're going to take these apart, and the life. Notice that we'll take this last phrase first. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Did you get that? Now, unbelievers' heads would be exploding right now if they heard this, because this is not politically correct. It's You Christians are so narrow. Only Jesus is the only way to the Father. Unbelievers would be fine if he said, I am a, a way. I am some truth and some life, and no one comes to the Father except through me and some of the other ways, like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and the New Age movement and just communing with nature. We all find God different ways. It's kind of Burger King theology. You can have it your way. No, you can't. You know why? Not because I say so. Because he's God, and he says, you want to know the way? There's only one way. As I've said before, I know you're getting sick of hearing me say this. Truth by nature is narrow. Two plus three is five, period. Some of you turn in your answers. Two plus three, you said it's 11. That's wrong. You said it's 104. That's wrong. There's one right answer and a trillion wrong answers. Where are we right now? We're in Oakhurst, California. We're not in Beirut. We're not in China. We're not in Kansas City. Well, that's so narrow. To me, this is, you know, St. Louis. Okay, but you need to see a psychiatrist because you're not in St. Louis, pal. You're in Oakhurst. Be in the moment. He's the truth as well. He is the way. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, his person, because of his, listen, sinlessness, he had to be sinless or he couldn't die on the cross. It would have meant nothing. Moses couldn't die on the cross for sins because he was a sinner. Abraham couldn't. David couldn't. Ezekiel couldn't. Nobody could except Jesus. So first thing is his sinlessness. Second thing is he did do it. He died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He's who he is, what he did, all play into this, why he is the passageway, if you will the doorway, the only way in. He said earlier he was the door. Now he says he's the way. You want to get to the Father, you go through Jesus. You go any other way, you're never going to get there. There's only one doorway. I'm the way and the truth. He embodies truth, okay? he. If you've ever been lied to, you know how much it hurts, doesn't it? There's no lies in him. There's no deceit. There's no darkness in him. There's no shadow of turning. He's 100% truth. And so is, by the way, the book on your lap. The Bible isn't mostly truth, partly truth, half truth. It's 100% God's truth. And it's all about a person. And he's saying here, it's me, meaning not me, Jesus. I'm the way 
and the truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is the truth and he is the life. What does that mean? It means that you could say, I have life in me. And so do you, Joe. And I would say, yeah, that's true. We're alive. We have life in us, but our life is derived. Do you realize that you take away Sam and Mary and Sherino, my parents, there's no life in me. There's no Joe. I got my life from my parents who got it from their parents who got it. You could go on all the way back to Adam and Eve who got their life from God. So physical life all comes from God. First of all, spiritual life. I am born again. I have spiritual life. My spirit is now alive. That's derived. I didn't make that happen. It's all because of Christ and the Holy Spirit, right? And God, the father, Jesus is not like us in that way. He has life in himself to the point that he can lay his own life down and take it up again. He can give life to others. He can say to Lazarus, Lazarus, Come forth. See, hear the British accent there. Um, everybody knows Jesus would speak with that British accent. He can say to people, rise, little girl, let's go get up, who were totally dead, and they come to life. He has life inherently in him. Uh, turn to John 1. Go back to John. You remember John? We've been so many places tonight. You're getting a little dizzy, aren't you? Um, John chapter 1. I think it's verse Um, uh, verse three, verse four in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Um, Jesus perfectly reveals the father is the point anyway. So he is, he's saying, I'm the way I'm the truth. I'm the life. In a sense, he's saying all this is to get to that place. What's the address? The father. But since he and the father are one, in a sense, he's the way, the truth, the life, and the destination. He is not only the address, he's the directions to get there. Do you understand? In the GPS analogy. Okay. He's not a way. He is the way. How many have heard of the Baha'i faith? Anybody heard of Baha'i? Okay. Um, If you've ever taken a test and it's, which is the correct answer? A, B, C, D, or E all of the above. You ever see that in a test? Sometimes it is E, it's all of the above. Baha'i is a religion started by Baha'u'llah, a guy from India, a guru type guy, okay? False prophet. And Baha'u'llah taught all of the above. What do you mean? The Buddhists are right, the Hindus are right, the Jews are right, the Christians are right, the the, uh, Islam is right, and he, Baha'u'llah, is the last prophet. What do you mean? I mean that all the religions of the world are right, and all they are is different roads to get to the same destination. That's all. They're all right. It sounds so good. I have a friend I love so much. He was in my band um, for three or four years in the 1980s. Uh, He lives in Alabama, and he's a Baha'i. Okay, well, it does sound pretty nice. Everybody's right. Everyone's going to make it. The problem is, They can't all be right if they all disagree, and they do. Christianity says there's one God and one way to get to heaven, Christ. One way, period. So already, you got to throw Christianity out of Baha'i then, but he doesn't. He just says he was a different avatar messenger for that time. In Hinduism, 
there is the one God, but then there are 330 million. Yes, I got the number right. 330 million other gods that deserve worship. Christianity says there's one God. That's those don't agree. It's like saying two plus three is five, but we're going to allow two plus three is 41 as well. How? Islam teaches that there's only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Not in Christianity. They don't agree. He's saying, no, they're all right in their own way. And they're not, right? It sounds so good. Anyway, wanted to throw that in at no extra charge. Um, ironic he is the way. Okay, we believe you. Eight or 10 hours from now, they're going to watch bloodied Jesus die on a cross and ask themselves, you think he really is the way? Look at him. He's going to be betrayed and convicted in seven trials because of a bunch of, wait for it, lies. And he's the truth. Ironic, right? And he's the life. And he's going to be dead before 24 hours are up. Do you see how much comfort they're going to need? How much faith they're going to need to have? You believe in God who you don't see, believe in me because you're not going to see me. I'm going in a grave and eventually I'm going to the father and you're not going to see me at all. It's going to take major faith for them to believe. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. In saying what he's saying, the exclusivity of it, he is setting aside, don't miss this, Judaism. He's setting aside the temple. He's setting aside the high priest. He's setting aside all the sacrifice of lambs, bulls, goats, pigeons, whatever. He's setting aside that whole system. Listen, I'm not down on Judaism. Christianity, Jesus, completes Judaism. If you read Hebrews, that's what that whole book is about that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is our temple, the place where we meet God. He is the place where there's sacrifice. He is the high priest who offers the sacrifice, but he's also the sacrifice himself. He is the lamb, the lamb one of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's all of it. He completes Judaism. Did most Jews get that? No. Will they at the end of time? Absolutely. Um, we already talked about that. Uh, and that verse seven, if you really know me or knew me, some translations have, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Astounding thing to say. If you really knew me, you think, you know, me, if you really knew who I was, You'd know my father as well. It's sort of like, this is a heretical thing to say, but I'll say it anyway, because it's sort of true. It's like Clark Kent saying, if you really knew me, you'd know Superman as well. Remember Clark Kent? Okay, okay, different, I know. But there's a sense in which it's true. From If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. To know me, he's saying, is to know the father. There's nothing we disagree on. There's nothing he can do that I can't do and vice versa. There's nothing that I say that are not the words of God. If you know me, you know the father. Jesus Christ perfectly represents the father. Keep your finger here and go to, well, stay in John one, if you're still there, like I am look at John one, 
Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. That means the father. But God, the one and only, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has revealed him or made him known. Look at Jesus. You want to know what's God like? I wish I could tell. And you can get a general sense from nature. He must be a nice guy. This is a wonderful planet with breathable air, tons of different energy sources, tons of food, drinkable water, salt water to keep the air clean. There's a whole story why the oceans of salt makes perfect sense. He must be a nice guy. I get a general sense of God when I walk in a forest, but you want to know God? Look at Jesus Christ. Go to Hebrews chapter one. Now turn way to the right, maybe 15 books from John, past Colossians and all those. Hebrews chapter one, it's right before James and right after um, all those books that start with a T, uh, Timothy and all that, and then after Philemon. Hebrews one, this one's important that you turn there, so I'm gonna wait for you to find it. Hebrews chapter one, it's been called the coffee book. Hebrews. Okay, sorry, I know that was bad. Just trying to keep you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, on Zoom, are you awake? Wave your hand, say amen. Okay, I see you, Joe and Sheila and Mariposa. Okay, John chapter one, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, talking to Jews, at many times and in various ways, that's true. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, which is Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He's the creator. Okay, tell us about this son. Verse three, the son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the approximate representation. Is that what it says? He's similar, wrong. That was for you, Bella and Luke. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, that's on the cross and the resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven so that he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited. Um, and it goes on from there. He is the exact representation of God. That's why he can say, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then that's why you can say, if you really knew me, verse 7, of back to John chapter 14, you'll, you'll know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You've seen him. What people have longed for, these 11 guys and the other people that were around when Jesus taught, got to see God walking around with sandals on. You and I have the benefit of the word of God. We can learn about God through learning about Jesus, his character. Look how gentle he is with people. He, he is so loving. In that culture where children were like third-class citizens, get these kids out of here, let the children come to me. Where women were third-class citizens, who does he appear to first? A woman after he dies. It's amazing. You want to know true love. You want to know God. Look at Jesus Christ. Um, verse 8. Philip speaks up. Doesn't talk much in the Gospels. Verse 8. Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. It's almost laughable, right? Look, just show us God. That's what we want to see. If you question what I've been saying all this time about Jesus is God. Read verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? 
have I been with you this long? And you, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? It's like you saying to me, show us Joe. And I'm saying, hello, that's me, right? That's what he's saying there. Um, we're going to have to quit in a second here. I'm just looking at notes to see how many things I forgot because I always do forget stuff. Oh, quickly, let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter one. So that's an easy book to find way at the back, right? Revelation chapter one, right before the book of table of contents in my Bible. Revel <laughs> Revelation chapter one. We get just a glimpse because we think of Jesus as the guy on the cross, the guy with sandals, the guy with holes in his hands and right a guy with maybe longer hair and a beard, a Jewish man. John gets a glimpse of Jesus glorified and it blows his mind in the book of Revelation. Um, and you would think I have the verse handy. Oh, there it is. Verse 13. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And he says in verse eight, this voice, I'm the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Do you get that? Who is it? It's God. It's the almighty. I use this with Jehovah's Witnesses and it blows their minds. Okay, so who is that? It's God. The, it's almighty. It's God. Right. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. No more carpenter from Nazareth here. Um, uh, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. Does that sound like the carpenter from Nazareth anymore? It's still him, but now the Clark Kent costume is off, and we're seeing him as he really is. What is John's reaction? Verse 17. When I saw him, I said, give me a high five. Wrong. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he says, don't be afraid, get up, right? There he is again, comforting him. We're out of time. We're going to quit for now. If you have a question, email me. If you want the notes, email me and tell me if you don't get them and I'll send them to you. Um, and that has the link to watch the, the Bible study on video afterwards or audio. You can hear it. Anyway, let's pray and we'll get out of here. I know you've got questions, but we'll cover them next week, hopefully. Thank you, God, for these lessons. And we're just bowled over by who and what your son is and who you are, Father. And first of all, help us not to be overconfident like Peter and think that we can handle everything. And don't you worry, God, I'm going to come through for you. We do everything in the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Help us to humbly follow and trust you. And thank you for the comfort of chapter 14. We're just getting into it, but there's so much more. We've learned that we're supposed to love one another, God. Help us to do so. Help us, give us that love, and then help us to hand it out. Help us to realize how much you've loved us, which makes it easier to love you. And we want to be distinguished from other people because of that love, so that the people will see us and it'll glorify you. That's the whole name of the game, Father. We uh, thank you that your son gave the ultimate gift 
of his own life in our place, Father. May we receive that love and that light and then hand it out horizontally everywhere we go. Thank you that you're preparing a place for us, and maybe we are bricks in that house, and you're preparing us. Help us not to resist, but to submit to you and your spirit as you change us and mold us and make us the brick you want us to be in your house, God. We can't wait to see you, but in the meantime, use us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Thank you for those of you on Zoom being here. Hope to see you next week. Uh, And God bless you. Thanks for being here.